Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you are listening in today. At Valley View Friends Church, as God's people, we are concerned about reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. That's our mission. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to the podcast to always get the next podcast. Alone. That's a word that can be very scary, alone. No one likes to feel that they are alone, and while we may enjoy time away from the crowd, everyone enjoys the company of a friend. We certainly do not like the idea of being without help or without anyone who cares. Charles Swindoll tells a story about an ad pla- uh, placed in a Kansas newspaper. It read, I will listen to you talk for 30 minutes without comment for $5. What a strange ad. I'll listen to you talk for 30 minutes without comment for $5. And it sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Who would take up that offer? So Dahl said that uh, it was real. And lots of people called. Many people called. It wasn't long before this individual who ran the ad was getting 10 to 20 calls a day. The pain of loneliness was so sharp that some were willing to try anything for even just a half an hour of companionship. With all this in mind, a word like solitude can be a very uncomfortable word. Perhaps you are craving some solitude. I think we all want it at some point or another. We we say to ourselves, well, if I could just get away from work, from my responsibilities, from, from the stress of life, or, or just getting a, get away from the overwhelming noise and busyness, busyness of this world. However, for many people, when they hear the word solitude, all they hear are words like, alone and lonely, disconnected and hopelessness. For many of us during the coronavirus pandemic, solitude sounds a bit too much like isolation. It sounds like something being taken away from us. But this does not have to be the case. Today, I want to begin a conversation with you about the spiritual discipline of solitude. The word solitude does not have to be alarming, and it doesn't have to be a burden. And this is especially true when we put with it the specific purpose of hearing God. Now you might be wondering, well, what's a spiritual discipline? That's kind of an odd phrase, spiritual discipline. Well, it's not punishment. Many people associate the word discipline with punishment. If spiritual disciplines feel like punishments, then we're doing it wrong. We're missing the point. Spiritual disciplines are practices, things that we do, that call us from shallow surface living into the depths of God. Spiritual disciplines are designed to bring us to our full potential as Christians. Know that God has a high calling for you. Will you invite him in and let him transform you? Spiritual disciplines are practices that aid in that transformation. They are intended to bring out the best in us. Spiritual disciplines refine and grow us. You're probably already familiar with several spiritual disciplines, but most of the time we encounter them without the deliberateness and the focus or even the Christian emphasis that is needed to truly call them a spiritual discipline. A few examples would be the discipline of prayer. Bible reading, meditation, fasting, simplicity, and there are many others. But today and in the next week or so, I want to look at and focus our time on the spiritual discipline of solitude. 
Now, it's important to remember that spiritual disciplines on their own, they do not make us holy or worthy, but they are tools that help us grow. John Ortberg writes these words, God's primary assessment of our lives is not going to be measured by the number of journal entries that we make or prayers that we send up to him. The real issue is what kind of people we are becoming. Practices such as reading scripture and praying, reading scripture and praying are important, not because they prove how spiritual we are, but because God can use them to lead us into life. Richard Foster writes this, A farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants, and then the natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. And this is why, this is the way it is with spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the Spirit. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to a place where something can be done. So today, we're going to take some time and talk about the spiritual discipline of solitude. Now, I want to say this. The practice of solitude is not about being alone, but it's about being with the Lord and enjoying His presence. That is the practice of the spiritual discipline of solitude in a nutshell. It's about being with the Lord and enjoying His presence. It's sort of deceiving because we hear solitude and we think, well, that means I'm by myself. But that's not what spiritual solitude is. It's about drawing away from distractions and being with the Lord and enjoying His presence. God wants you to draw near Him. And solitude is one way that we can allow this to happen. I want to draw your attention to a text, a text in the Bible that will help us to begin our understanding uh, as we go into the discipline, the spiritual discipline of solitude. It comes from Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, and it reads like this. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their own tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend, and then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. This is not a story about being alone. Too many people think of solitude as about being by themselves. But the story we just read has very little to do with being alone. Moses meets with God face to face. That's not alone. And sure, he goes off to a tent away from everyone else, but when he does so, I mean, did you catch it? This is a group activity. When Moses goes to the tent of meeting, all of Israel is watching him. And when they see that cloud descend from the heavens, they all worship. I have a feeling this was a noisy event. When we think of the discipline of solitude, I'm sure most of us do not think of, well, let's make some noise. But it happens here. And lastly, we find out 
Joshua is with Moses when he meets with God. So there's very little to do with being by themselves in this passage, but there's a lot to do with meeting with God. This passage shows us the ultimate goal of the spiritual discipline of solitude, encountering the holy presence of God. I think we need to understand some of the context of this story. And really, the reality is a scary one. Israel is in trouble. They've really messed up. They left Egypt. They, they left bondage of slavery to meet with God in the wilderness. Things are going to be wonderful. And they camped at the, mount of, the foot of Mount Sinai. And while Moses was up on that mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and receiving the covenant from God, something happened. Before Moses could return to the people, because he was up there a long time receiving the, the commandments from God, while he's up there, before he came back, Israel decided that, you know what, this is taking too long, and, and we've got to take matters into our own hands. And so they attempt to make their own God to worship, because they can't wait on this God anymore. So they forge a golden statue of a cow to worship. Such a puzzling thing. How can one worship something they make themselves? But they do. When Moses sees what Israel has done, he is fur furious. He smashes the tablets. He yells at the people, and God judges Israel. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 22 through 24, we get a, a piece of Aaron answering back to Moses. He's kind of making some sad excuses. He says, don't be angry at me, my Lord. Aaron answered, he's talking to Moses, You know how prone these people are to evil? They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, Well, whoever has any gold, take it off. Take gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Whenever I read that part of the story, I just think that is so strange. What a weak excuse from Aaron. He's saying, you know, I couldn't help it, Moses, that everybody was angry at me, so I gathered up the gold and I threw it into the fire and, and out jumped a golden cow. I, I couldn't believe this could happen. Yeah, right. Israel made an idol and Aaron helped. They betrayed God. Now we go forward a little further. Exodus 33, we're getting closer to what we read earlier when Moses was going to the tent of meeting. But just before that, in the beginning of Exodus 33, God speaks to Moses and he says, You know what? Lead them up to the promised land, but I am not coming with them, Moses. God is saying, I'm staying behind. I cannot travel with these people anymore. What a tragic moment in Israel's history. The whole point of them leaving Egypt and going into the wilderness is so that they could be with God, that he could be their God, and they could be, their, he could, they could be his people, and they would go to the promised land together. And now it's not going to happen. Exodus 33, verse 3, says this. It's God speaking. He says, Go up to the land of flowing with milk and honey, but I'll not go with you because you are stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Israel's in trouble. God might destroy them if he gets too close. They messed up. And they're probably asking the question, Can this ever be made right? I read those words from God and he says, you know, I, I might destroy you on the way. And I kind of picture a parent who has just been just absolutely frazzled by a disobedient child. And the parent's about to just lose control. And, and so the parent needs a timeout themselves. And I think God is saying, you don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to stay behind for a bit, calm down. 
Well, I don't know that God needed to calm down, but you can kind of get the picture. He is upset. Israel's in trouble. Can this ever be made right? And so Moses begins to show them, to show all of Israel that the situation can be changed. He shows them how to meet with God again. And he does it with a tent. And I would argue the practice of solitude. Moses takes a special tent outside of the camp, away from the people. He sets it up, and there he goes to meet with God. But it's not too far away. Israel can watch. They can see the holy presence, but they're a safe distance. He's practicing solitude. He's meeting with the holiness of God. I think we can learn a lot from Moses about the discipline of solitude. Remember, the discipline of solitude teaches us how to hear God and how to meet with God. And the first thing I'd say about Moses' practice here, he's very deliberate. He was incredibly deliberate in the practice of solitude. He takes a special designated tent, this tent and this tent alone. We're going to call it the tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle. The tabernacle has not been built yet. In fact, everybody's worried, are we ever going to build the tabernacle? Because God's mad at us. So, so Moses designates a specific tent. He's very deliberate. He says, this is it. When I meet with God, I'm going in there. And anyone else can go in too. If you're ever brave enough, I'll go first. I'll model it for you. I'll show you that it's okay. But he says, this is the place. This is the tent. It's specific. And then he always puts it up away from Israel. He's deliberate in that. There's a separation. And the separation is there certainly because Israel and God are at the moment at odds. But it's also a way for Moses to separate himself from the demands of the people so that he can hear the word of the Lord. I, I like to picture Moses beginning to, his walk towards that tent. And, you know, the first couple of steps, he's thinking about conflicts he has to resolve and make rulings on. And, and he's, he's thinking about the health of his people and where they're going to travel next. He's got all these things on his mind. And each step, he starts thinking about busy stuff less and anticipating more his meeting with God. That that journey transforms his thoughts to healthier thoughts for encountering God. There is a deliberateness in the journey of going to the tent of meeting. Deliberateness in the practice of solitude asks us to put aside what's on our mind, to turn off the noise of life, and anticipate drawing near to God. Are you doing that? So Moses is deliberate. He also repeats what he does. He does it over and over. The text indicates that this became Moses' normal, regular practice. When Israel parked and put up all their tents and made camp for however long they were going to be in a place, Moses then went and put up that specific, deliberate designated tent of meeting. It was a recurring habit. I have to imagine that sometimes putting up that tent worked really well, and other days, well, there was probably more silence when he went in the tent to meet with God. Maybe he didn't feel like he met with God at all. But because he kept setting up the tent repeatedly, kept seeking God, the reward paid off. It piled up over time. He developed the practice of solitude, of meeting with God. The third lesson I think we can learn from Moses about the practice of solitude from this tent of meeting, encountering God, is that he sought the holy. 
This is why it is worthwhile for Moses to set up a special tent. When he goes there, he steps out of ordinary life and meets God face to face. It is a holy moment, powerful and wonderful. It changes Moses. It transforms the nation of Israel. We need to see this. It's not just the transformation of Moses, but of all of Israel. When he goes into the tent, they all stand at the doors of their tents and they go, you know what? God is meeting with Moses. They get excited about that. And they go, you know what? God is mighty. He is holy. And they worship him. The whole nation is transformed. That's the holy presence of God. And this is why I would challenge you to the practice, the spiritual practice of of solitude. When you do it right, You'll experience the holy presence of God in ways that you would never expect. Because solitude opens our ears and tunes our hearts to God. And it also tunes us into each other. Solitude is also more of a state of mind than it is a place. The practice of solitude is actually about control. It's about the ability to tune out the noise of life and tune into the voice of God. It's about the ability to say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to stop running my mouth and my complaints and I'm going to listen for you. You can practice solitude in a loud, crowded room if you've learned to control and hear God. Richard Foster writes these words, If we possess inner solitude, we do not fear being alone. For we know that we are not alone, and neither do we fear being with others, because they do not control us. Solitude is difficult, because if we become silent, we'll also relinquish our personal control over the problems of life. We're no longer spouting out explanations, but we're letting God step in. Richard Foster, he also writes, Solitude and silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the Spirit, simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. So instead of us going, But Lord, don't you know? But Lord, I'm sorry. It wasn't my fault. Solitude stops that. And listens for God. So how can you practice the spiritual discipline of solitude. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today and over the next couple of weeks. First, identify the enemies of solitude. And some of these are general and some of them are going to be specific to you. But general ones might be noise, the distractions of life, might be priorities that are always asking your, for your attention or obligations. It might be our need to be in control, and even the devil himself can be an enemy of solitude. One author that I was reading about solitude suggested that we learn to hear the voice of God in solitude, uh, that to learn to hear the voice of God in solitude means that we put aside all human forms of language. I'm pretty sure that's very hard to do, but I like the point. that if we want to hear God, turn off our voice. Turn off the phone. Turn off background music, stop speaking, stop writing, put a stopper in the human voice for a moment, and let God speak. I'm not sure we always have to go that far, but I think you get the point. 
and the discipline of solitude does ask us to turn off everything that makes us blind to the holiness of God. And that's the question I think you need to ask yourself. When you want to practice solitude, and it's hard to do, and you feel like you're not moving forward, ask yourself, well, is there something that is making me blind to the holiness of God? And as you identify those things, remove them. And each time you do, you will draw closer to God. If you want to practice the discipline of solitude, be like Moses. Pitch your own tent of meeting. It could be a place, it could be a time, it could be an attitude that seeks to meet with God. This summer, the Walker family is taking up camping as a hobby. Uh, you're probably going to think we're crazy with all that we're doing. We're having to, you know, Betsy and I, we used to camp a lot when we were in high school and our college days. And then we got away from it after we got married. And we, you know, I was in Boy Scouts and she did camping uh, through summer camps and through some schooling. Uh, but we both got away from it when we got married, and now we are having to relearn after 20 years of not camping. After we, The first order of business for us as we learn how to camp, as we relearn all of this, is we had to pick up a new tent for our family. Now, I've done enough camping in little two-person tents to know uh, I don't want to do that again. I've, I've had too many times where there's a tent only big enough to just barely sit up in, and you kind of have to lean in towards the center, and it's it's just not comfortable. I, I don't want to have to crouch and crawl through a doorway every time I get into the tent. So I wanted to pick out a tent for our family that was big enough for us to stand up in. It had a door so that we didn't have to stoop down to walk through, and it was uh, big enough for our family. And we're not a big family, just a family of three and a dog. And if we bring a guest along, so we got, uh, well, we got a monster-sized tent. It's too big, but it's going to be fun. So I know, I knew when we bought this tent that we were going to have to set it up. We were to practice setting up the tent so that we knew how it worked. Because one thing I've learned over the years is you don't want to be caught out in the rain or the dark or the wind or storms coming and be putting up a brand new tent for the very first time and you have no idea how this works, that's going to cause problems. So we practiced putting up the tent. And that's what I say to you. If you want to practice a spiritual discipline of solitude, if you want to have your own tent of meeting, practice helps you getting get better at putting up that tent, that special place to meet with God. Practice will help you with the spiritual discipline of solitude. The first time you make an attempt to meet with God in solitude, someone's going to interrupt you. Something is going to ask for your time. Or maybe you're going to feel like nothing happened. So practice. Learn from the mistakes. Keep learning how to put up your tent of meeting. That way, when you need it in an emergency, you're not going to get caught out in the dark of the rain without knowing how to reach out for God. Now back to the Walker family tent, that new tent we were trying to learn how to put up. My son, Seth, he was so excited, as any young boy would be. We got a tent. I want to camp in the tent. Let's put it up, Dad. Well, the weekend we purchased a tent, it rained all weekend. I'm not going to put up this tent in the rain for the first time. It's just not going to be fun. Then an idea crept in my mind. What if I put up this tent in the house? It's a freestanding tent. We could do this. Seth could enjoy it, despite the rain. We could figure out how it works. We might even be able to sleep in it one night in the house. I know, weird, right? But we tried it out. 
And I thought to myself, well, we've got space in the living room that seems big enough for the tent. So we moved a pair of chairs out of the way. We prepared the space. And that's important for practicing the discipline of solitude. You need to, you need to just practice putting up the tent, but you also need to prepare the space for solitude. That means designate a time, designate a location. You might need to talk with other people in your home so they know that you will need, uh, they need to give you space when you practice solitude. You know, my youth pastor, when I was in high school, always encouraged us to guard our time. If there's something we wanted to do to meet with God, a prayer time, a devotion time, a Bible time, put it on the calendar. Guard it. Don't let other things get scheduled in over top of that. He said, if you don't plan it and protect it, something else will fill that time. It's the same way with solitude. Guard the time. Talk to those in your home that might interrupt you so they know, okay, I, I know mom or dad, I know that brother, sister, whatever, whoever it is, they're practicing solitude. I shouldn't bug them right now. You might need to prepare the space by putting your phone in a drawer or a different room. You might need to prepare the space by saying, well, what time am I at my best? That's the time to practice meeting with God. If you are not a morning person, if you are a zombie in the mornings, don't try to practice solitude then. Do it when you're most awake. Prepare your space, whether it's a physical preparation, a mental preparation, or whatever type of preparation it needs to be. Back to that family tent that we were putting up on our house. As I unfolded the tent, I realized it was bigger than I thought. So I moved the couch as well. And as I began putting the poles in the tent, it expanded and got rounder and larger and the couch needed moved again and then an end table needed moved and there were a few more chairs that needed moved. It was a big tent. It's a big tent. It took more space. But the point is, we made adjustments. And with the spiritual discipline of solitude, you will have to make adjustments. Don't expect to get it right the first time. Expect to always make adjustments for this practice of solitude to become better and better and better each time you try it. Back to that family tent. Well, we finally got it put up. The tent almost touched the ceiling and ended up dominating the first floor of the house. Seth was thrilled and Betsy was like, well, that's nice. Don't leave it up too long. What started as a simple afternoon of testing out the new tent turned into several days that the whole Walker household was dominated by this tent. It was fun, but it was much more than we ever anticipated. And setting up your tent to meet with God will take a lot more work than you think. It will take a lot more space than you think. It will take more practice than you think. It might not work at first. Chances are... That tent will need more room than you think it needs. It's funny how God works like that. We often have too small a picture of how God fills our lives. He'll want more space. And actually, it was bad when the tent dominated the living room. I got in a little bit of trouble. But when you practice solitude, meeting with God, it will be wonderful when he fills your life edge to edge with his holy presence. The spiritual discipline of solitude is not necessary, but it's a powerful tool that we can use to welcome the holiness of God into our lives. 
I want to go back to Moses' story for a moment, read you a little bit more of it. It comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. It tells us that Moses, as he entered the presence of God, as he sought God away from the people, his face eventually would begin to glow. And it reads like this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, these are new tablets, by the way, because well, they wanted to replace the ones that were broken, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord again. Jim Branningham, one of our pastors in Eastern Region, has shared more than once that as pastors, we should study the Word of God and seek God so diligently that when we preach, the congregation can see the glow on our face, the glow of God. And I think that challenge is good for any believer. Take up that challenge. Seek God. Seek Him diligently and deeply so that when people encounter you, they see the glow of His holy presence on your face. Parents, you want to seek God in a way that your children see His glow on your face. Christians, you should want your neighbors and co-workers to see the glow of God on your faces. That's what the practice of solitude can do in your lives. Will you diligently seek to meet with God face to face, to face so that others can see the glow? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much that even though we are not holy the way that you are, you still desire for us to draw near to you. Lord, help us to hear you more clearly and understand you more. Help us to be transformed by your presence in our lives. Help us to seek you so dearly, so deeply, that the people around us would be blessed by your holy glow upon our faces. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.